This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's set the Business Week agenda. Gina Martin-Adams with us, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, on the phone from New Jersey, also from New Jersey. Dave Wilson, our stock editor at Bloomberg News. And Dave, just set the trade. As Charlie mentioned, we really have seen quite a bounce in the last hour or so. Oh, no doubt about it. We're back at the highs of the day. If you look at the S&P 500, you know, yesterday we were talking about how uh, you, technology stocks were not at the forefront of the gains. In fact, they were trailing the market. Today, they are right there. Uh, best performer among the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500. In fact, 10 of the 11 are higher. You know, financial shares, the only exception as far as that goes. So, you know, you put this all together and we're really close to the S&P 500 uh, breaking its record from February. And it's just a matter of a few points here or there that uh, will dictate it. You know, you look across the biggest companies, you know, the big tech companies, if you like, call them what you will, uh, all up at least 2 percent. Apple leading the way with a gain of three and a half percent. So, you know, Tesla really jumps out too, up 13 percent after deciding on a five for one stock split. That's the sort of thing that happened in the 1990s when companies <laughs> were splitting their shares left, right, and center. Right. And they're just not doing that anymore. And so Tesla really does, you know, kind of look like a throwback uh, with, with its stock performance today. It's like uh, with Apple and that stock split, too. Um, hey, Gina, yep. real quick on today. So the narrative was that we got higher producer prices and consumer prices over the last two days, and then we have a reflation slash inflation scenario. It, do you buy any of that? That narrative um, to explain why value stocks got a little bit of rotation over the last couple of days. But today's trade is really driven by growth stocks again. So I think the bigger story is we broke out above those July 22nd highs, and it's been off to the races ever since, where the market breaks through these sort of significant resistance levels. It looks for the next level of resistance, which is not until uh, the most recent peaks. It's just sort of full steam ahead until we get back to those early 2020 highs, and then we'll probably test those highs. Uh, you know, it's tough to say what's really driving the rotation. I do think the technicals are a lot of it because from a fundamental perspective, there hasn't been a whole lot to hang your hat on. You know, there's still a lot of concern about will they or won't they on the fiscal policy front. There's still a very uncertain um, landscape with respect to a vaccine. Certainly the Fed is not adding a ton of more firepower to this market. So I think it's more technically driven than anything else. Except I do want to say on that last point, um, you know, about the Fed, I do feel like, and I get people, you know, messaging me or tweeting at me, and they're like, listen, if anything starts to fall apart, we know the Fed's going to be there. I mean, is that kind of a given, Gina? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's an implied Fed put for sure, and that change, that really changed this year, especially in comparison to the last several years when there was more focus And back in 2017, 2018 in particular, recall, we were focused more on how much can the Fed tighten which is a very different landscape than today, which is really just, okay, the Fed's going to remain loose for a very, very long period of time. 
But usually what you see is not, it's not just that Fed put, you've already priced in the, the idea that the Fed has accelerated the pace of liquidity provision to the market. You've already priced in the fact that rates are extremely low. You usually need to see incrementally more uh, liquidity and incrementally more movement in rates to get really excited about stocks. Nonetheless, that's not the case today. We're still seeing stock prices rise, and the vast majority of the rise is driven by valuation expansion. Um, so it's pretty clear to me that uh, this is largely technically driven. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, it just is, is what, to me, is driving the market higher. Dave, if you take a look at the, the value trade, you know, the conversation in the market, though, is that in order to have a sustained value rotation and a real move into small caps, you need a vaccine, full stop, you need a recovery. Is that, is that true? Well, it, there are certainly those strategists who will say so. I mean, we, we've seen, you know, if you go back the last few months, I mean, occasionally you get these sort of two or three day moves in value stocks and people think, oh, finally, the situation <laughs> has changed because value has been trailing really ever since the bull market began back in 2009. Well, you know, we're looking at another move that's fizzled out just like the earlier ones have. And it's just a matter of, you know, as long as those big tech companies kind of stay at the forefront of the market, it's like, you know, there's sort of like a, a, a force field. Everything kind of ends up coming back to them in some level. And, you know, the value stocks just haven't been able to compete. All right, good stuff. Uh, and I know, Dave, your chart coming up takes a look at fear in the market, speci- specifically looking at U.S. options. So looking yes. forward to seeing what that has to say. Or the lack thereof, really. <laughs> Much more specific. All right, really appreciate it. Dave Wilson, uh, our stocks at Bloomberg News. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. We know that the world is in a race for a vaccine for COVID-19, more likely several vaccines. But in the meantime, testing and tracing are key to keeping coronavirus in check. And especially when we talk about reopening schools, colleges and universities. Our next guest has some thoughts on that, especially when it comes to tapping into what he sees as the underutilization of the nation's test labs. We welcome back Dr. Eric Schott, founder and CEO at SEMA4. It's a patient-centric predictive health company. He's also dean for precision medicine and and Mount Sinai professor in predictive health and computational biology. He's really smart, Alex, (laughs) at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He joins us uh, once again on the phone in Connecticut. Um, Eric, it's good to have you back with us. Tell us a little bit about testing and tracing, right? We keep hearing how important this is, but as Alex said at the top of the show, she recently had to go in for procedure, got her test done, got the results back pretty quickly, but she, and I've seen this too, other people taking tests and it takes forever to get the results back. Yeah, so there's, you know, a lot of testing capacity out there. I think it all comes down to logistics and who, you know, has the right kind of partnerships with the different systems to kind of leverage capacity beyond one lab. There's no single lab that can handle all of the capacity that's coming, right? We have these fluctuations and episodes of intense um, outbreaks where the testing demand gets super high. And so it's, this, uh, it's logistical, really, the ability to manage and leverage multiple partners to be able to uh, leverage the capacity that's available. Without getting too political, I mean, President Trump talks a lot about how we have the best testing system in the world, and we've really done a good job with testing. Um, so w- w- what is he talking about? Like, where do we do well? And then where do we need to do better? So the the technological side of the testing, you know, being able to provide high
highly sensitive, very specific, very accurate tests. The technologies those are based on, the ability to automate those technologies like we do lead in that arena. I think where we fall down uh, and would not say we're the best you know, in the world would be, again, on this logistics side, the ability to manage huge patient flows, the collection of samples, the the sending of those samples into the major labs to get them processed, like that requires more of a centralized infrastructure that a few big labs have, but they're overwhelmed and can't meet the demand. Well, as we all said at the beginning, too, and we heard this from a lot of our guests early on, and um, it was all about kind of a war effort. Like, we needed to think about getting ahead of this as if we were fighting. I mean, we were fighting. It was a health war. But, I mean, that's something, Eric, we kind of needed to do um, and really have federal involvement, national, a national strategy, but we didn't have it. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about. A hundred percent. And the scale of testing is something no lab in the country has had to undertake in the history of the U.S. You know, the ability to run many hundreds of thousands into the millions of tests a day, that's just a scale we've never had to face before. So the kind of infrastructure you need to accommodate that, the coordination within the government, within the private lab world, that's just not something that existed. So talk to us about your own personal ramp up that you guys did at Semaphore, because you got involved with this pretty quickly. And it wasn't what you were set up to do initially, right? Right. It definitely, you know, we, we're a state-of-the-art, you know, next-generation sequencing um, lab and intelligence company. So we have, again, familiarity with the technology and the automation. So that uh, part was easy. So what we were able to do quickly was stand that technology up, run it through a CLIA-certified um, lab and demonstrate the ability to get highly accurate and, and quick turnaround results. Um, but like everybody else, we faced, you know, from the crunch on availability of reagents and test kits to the logistics of getting samples to flow through in a very seamless way. Those are some of the obstacles we had to overcome. And of course, partnered with the state of Connecticut and a lot of their resources around, you know, bringing in uh, groups like the National Guard to help and so on. So it was a, it was a, 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 an interesting effort. <laughs> that was a nice way of putting that. Um, <laughs> so how, well, yeah. you, you brought it up, sort of the huge effort. Uh, what about financial cost for that? Because it, it's great to want to change how we do stuff and do, but it feel like it's always going to come down to dollars and cents. Yeah, the cost um, definitely plays a big role you know, how accommodated you want to be in the test. You know, we do have the ability to test in the home to do, you know, through saliva collection and uh, anterior nary swabbing of the nose and so on. But those kits cost money. The shipping of those kits in a timely way uh, costs money. The running of the test uh, costs money. And the software to support how you can manage large flows of individuals, like, you know, like consider back to work or back to school programs where, you know, those systems, they don't need just a test that they can flip, right, because they're not accustomed to testing everybody that way in, in say, a school or a business. They need, they need help managing that, both, um, you know, managing who's eligible for testing, what are their results, are they eligible to come back into the workplace or the school. Like, so there's a lot, a lot, of, again, of infrastructure um, needed, and so the cost varies widely depending on are you just running a test that somebody's provided you the sample, or are you managing the entire flow? I do. So that's also, why you see it. Yeah. No, no, please right finish. No, no, please finish. That's why you see the wide variability and the, you know, 
in the cost and the accessibility to those kinds of services. I mean, what do we need realistically in this country to be able to do the testing that's that's kind of demanded for a comfortable or more comfortable reopening? And we've just got about a minute. We're going to do some news, and then we'll come back, Eric. I think it's uh, you need uh, very large scale, very low cost uh, sample collection methods, and there are a number of uh, very significant efforts underway. You know, funded by the Gates Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Like, how do we, for very low cost, enable samples to be collected in a home um, environment, not have to be medically observed? Like, that's a big obstacle that um, is being overcome. And then I think it's all about, like, how do you enable labs to handle hundreds of thousands of samples coming in in a day? Like, again, that's just like a logistical, like, think if you're sitting in a warehouse and hundreds of thousands of these samples are coming at you. They have to be very carefully managed and tracked and so on. Um, Doctor, you also run a business. You had to deal with the business during the pandemic. Um, How did you keep people motivated? How did you do it? What did you learn? Well, I think... You know, first of all, we're on a, a cool mission at Semaphore. Like, it is about how do we better enable patients and physicians to uh, make better decisions around their care. We, of course, had to stay in full operation while this was going on because we provide standard of care services and then the COVID testing. So it was like putting in place the right kinds of protections, enabling employees to feel safe. We went, the labs went to alternating shifts where, you know, we had a chance to clean between shifts and, and if one shift got uh, infected, we, you know, had another shift that could, could pick up the ball. So it was a lot of, again, logistical maneuvering and uh, putting in place the right protections. And we, you know, started doing testing as well on the employees and, um, you know, symptom tracking and so on to, you know, just, just be as protected as possible. I am curious too, Dr. Schott, you know, from your channels also at um, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and just the folks that you're talking with in your industry and the medical community at large, you know, how do you see 2021 playing out? Do you have any visibility and what are your expectations? Yeah, it's a, it's a, one of those top, he laughs you know, at you basically care. I know, I know. <laughs> we don't, we don't uh, have any visibility, before. so we're, we're just asking everybody else for right. it. Right. Yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. I think, you know, the testing will get under more control. Uh, we'll, we'll play out whether the antibodies are predictive for immunity. Uh, some vaccines hopefully will roll onto the scene. Like, I think what we'll see is increasingly better management, better protection, allowing a more relaxed stance given those better protections. Um, so I see things getting, um, you know, more back to normal uh, into 2021. But, yeah, but definitely don't see this disappearing. I think, you know, it's going to stick with us for a while, and it's going to really be our ability to better manage it and return to as normal a stance as possible. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I've been back at work for, I think this is my fifth week. And in the beginning when I came back, it was really jarring. Um, and then I got all my systems in place, like when to sanitize, when to wipe stuff down, and then it feels okay. And as I mentioned earlier, I had a test last week and I'm negative. I mean, is this what we're all kind of in for? Like we all just have to kind of bite the bullet, kind of get back in gear, and then we realize it's going to be okay and the protocols that we've been taking are working? I think that's exactly right. Like the evidence will build that those kind of protections are working and do prevent um, spread and new infections, and they're not so onerous, and they do enable us to get back into a somewhat normal stance and have more face-to-face uh, contact. You know, we are human beings. We're, 
where I don't think we were intended to live in a completely digital world. So I think it is important to get back to that uh, kind of level. And the back-to-work programs we're helping manage, we see exactly what you mentioned. Like if you follow those kind of protocols, like you can, you can be really well protected. It works. Well, and that's what's interesting because you are working with corporations uh, on back-to-work testing and also with schools and colleges. So are you anticipating that that's, like as Alex said, that testing becomes more the norm, that we're all going to be doing it kind of on a regular basis or maybe doing it for ourselves? I mean, is that what's going to be in 2021 as well? Just quickly, just got about a minute left. Yeah, I think think absolutely. I think testing is going to become a very critical component going forward, but it's, it's a necessary component, but not sufficient. I think a lot of the kind of symptom tracking, how people are feeling, even some uh, degree of contact tracing, all of that combined will provide a robust solution. Like we will enter the era of surveillance kind of testing like that will, I believe, be here to stay. That's like people knocking on our doors being like, are you home? <laughs> I don't think people knocking on your doors. I think it's surveillance from the standpoint of are you infected? Is is the virus spreading through communities? Like because if it is, we can take extra protective steps to to slow it or prevent it. Yeah, it's definitely a different uh, new world order. Um, Eric, thank you so much. Really appreciate checking in with you again, Dr. Eric Schott. He's founder and CEO at Semaphore. Joining us on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. We've got a special vaccine issue this week. Uh, It's all about how we got here, the science manufacturing politics and persuasion that might just end the pandemic. It is called the vaccine issue. And there's a really interesting story, uh, a disturbing one, too, about how vaccine nationalism is making this deadly disease even worse. Let's get into this story. Vernon Silver, projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from Rome. He wrote it. And also with us is the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber on the phone from Massachusetts. Joel, you know, just when you think this story can't get any worse, you do think about the nationalistic issues of this virus. That's right. And, you know, again, one of the defining uh, elements of this issue was to sort of take this idea of a vaccine and look at it from as many different ways and angles as we could think of. And it wasn't just about the, the sort of the horse race, if you will, of trying to make this thing. And as much as that's an important part, uh, it also ha- there's plenty of other components, and the political one is obviously an especially important dimension here. And and when when Ernan, Vernon sort of rose his, uh, raised his hand about this idea, I think it got to a deeper place because what we're seeing is countries really having this, in general, just this resurgence of nationalism, and that's now manifesting itself um, around how they're approaching the vaccine. And as countries are digging their heels in to sort of do everything by themselves, it it actually makes the whole situation worse because through collaboration, we might have uh, been able to pool resources and maybe maybe reach um, a cure or a vaccine quicker than we otherwise might and benefit more people. And what I think Vernon really found that was so interesting was being in Rome, you know, which was one of the first places affected by the pandemic. Uh, it really felt like Italy was at sort of the forefront of of this conversation. So, so Vernon, what was the Italian perspective on all of this? Yeah, I mean, what what we did was started following the vials, literally, of how the vaccine were were being produced. And the first strand came in just ten little vials that were sent from Oxford uh, to Rome to this company that was going to make over ten thousand doses for the trials, the, the very first large scale trials of 
of a vaccine in the world. Um, and by happenstance, um, the, you know, the initial supply of that vaccine was within the borders of, of Italy and the politicians here latched onto it. And it kind of, it kind of steamed, you know, it, it was a snowball where you had more deals being made and more kind of nationalist rhetoric coming out of the mouths of, of the leaders here uh, who needed a redemption from having been the worst hit at the outset. Um, and the, the end result is that we've got about a, you know, a quarter of the supply of the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccine now being uh, bottled within Italy's borders and how it plays out in the end is one of the, the questions that, that's been left open as they balance, you know, let's all cooperate with, well, we do have it here. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that part up because I was wondering what the nationalism part means. Does it mean that you provide the money to the company to make the vaccine, that you then buy all the vaccine? Does it have to be a local company that's making the vaccine? Or is it the distribution, like the vials and the manufacturing part? Like, there are lots of different angles to it. Yeah, and the best way to understand it is it breaks down into two areas, the the bad actors and the bad planners. And the bad actors are, you know, the accusations against the Chinese and Russian governments that they've been hacking the Western efforts. The bad actors are, we already saw it in March when protective equipment was being blocked by different countries. Ninety different countries blocked equipment that would have been of use uh, during the pandemic. Those are the, those are the bad actors, and we kind of know about those. The, the bad planners is sort of just the splintering of where, you know, are you going to throw a lot of money at it? You know, the Trump administration is throwing $10 billion at this Operation Warp Speed. That sucks up supply. Poorer countries then, you know, are trying to pull money to buy their own supplies. That drives up prices. And these companies that are trying to, you know, save the, you know, save the world and also make some money are trying to find solutions. And AstraZeneca was a great example because they've decided they need to fight the nationalism by creating these supply chains on four different continents. If everyone's going to fight over it, give everyone their own darn supply chain. So Russia has a supply chain of the Oxford vaccine, and Brazil will have one. And there's the one in Italy, and there's a billion doses being made in India. So, okay, best laid plans, right? We create vaccine or vaccines, and the world has equal access to it. And then there's reality. Is there, Vernon, the possibility, the likelihood that we're going to see people ordering the vaccine, but then there's going to be countries who are not going to let it cross their borders? Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what the companies are planning for. That's what the governments are planning for. That's why you, you try to get a clear idea of how these these orders are. Who, go, who goes first? You know, when the U.K. said, you know, it's been developed at Oxford, we're going to get the first doses for our people. How does that play out in the end? And that's that's sort of what we're looking at next is that borders have become the battle lines in, in this nationalism of, of the vaccines. Hey, Vernon, um, the, uh, the other thing that you said in here um, was something about poor countries. Mm. And I just want to bring that out here because for basically everything that we're looking at here, we're basically talking about rich nations that have the ability to actually have the science and manufacturing in place. Is this yet another example of sort of uh, this you know, ongoing conversation that we have about inequality? And and uh, and, and here we have co- some countries with uh, many people who will actually have access to something first, while probably a greater portion of the world has nothing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, across the board from the beginning, this pandemic has exposed and exacerbated inequality of all types. And we're going to see in the coming months as the vaccines, and there are tons of them as they roll out, that there will be huge inequalities. And everybody will get hurt by that because the fact is that these viruses don't know borders. So if the UK or the US or China hoards their own supply, well, you know, somebody in the poorer parts of the world is going to uh, not get it. And that just, you know, if they if if there were some magic way to get everyone to spread it around at the same time for the people who most needed it, uh, you know, healthcare workers, the vulnerable, uh, then we'd be out of this mess a lot quicker. But that's not what's happened. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder, too, because especially in these emerging markets, it's where you're seeing some of the early testing of the vaccine mm-hmm. happening. And it would be kind of ironic, unfair, um, I don't even know what other words to use about it, if ultimately these countries then don't have access to the vaccine when it's finally confirmed. So it's a deep, deep read. Um, The coverage in the magazine about uh, the race for a vaccine, as Joel said, it's not just about the horse race, but about so many other issues such as vaccine nationalism. So it's a must read, Alex. Yeah, I think we saw that um, with HIV uh, in Africa. That right. like that the, they were that's where they did all the early testing and that's where you're going to run into some problems. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like, man, there's just so many different facets to this story and so much more to come. Um, our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek on the phone from Massachusetts. Vernon Silver, great reporting always. Projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News has been watching this virus firsthand uh, from Italy and joining us on the phone from Rome. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. And uh, Alex, we recently noted here at Bloomberg, you actually brought this up uh, on our planning call. You talked about how some companies have been out there to kind of the rush, if you will, for sustainable finance. I think there was a recent bond sale from Google, right? Their parent alphabet. Google, Visa, Mm. it's sort of like the new trend uh, in the middle of the pandemic. And there is a demand. I think the question though becomes like, do you actually make a good enough return on it yeah, versus right? buying something else. Ultimately, it's about the returns. In our weekly uh, Bloomberg Green segment today, our Emily Chasen, she's a sustainability editor at Bloomberg News. She's got uh, a look at how long-term investors now hold more sway when it comes to ESG, environmental, um, sus- oh, I can't remember what that is now. Environmental, sustainable, governance. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a momentary break here. Hey, man. Time has no meaning. Thank you, partner. <laughs> Let's get into Emily. She joins us on the phone in New York City. Time has no meaning. Emily, thank you, thank you. Save me, save me. So what's going on? Yeah, well, actually, you know, that's a really good start to this conversation, that time has no meaning. You know, we're talking a lot about short-term investors. We talk about long-term investors. Um, One of the things that's interesting in this pandemic is that short-term activists have not really been making the big bets they they were, right? Like, the market is pretty volatile. It's pretty risky to take such a big bet. So long-term investors right now actually have a much um, at least the big companies have a much larger influence. And they've been warning for years about all these systemic and workforce issues with diversity and climate change. And so um, this is kind of like help health. This is kind of their moment. Um, so ESG has definitely been surging. And um, we looked a little bit this week about the tools that long-term investors actually have to influence companies. So the criticism in terms of, say, the last six months with ESG is that the reason why ESG did well is because it's mostly tech. Like, ESG is, you're not going to think of it as an as energy, right? And tech is outperforming energy. So therefore, ESG performs better. But that's not really because of ESG. What, what do you think about that? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting because Bloomberg Intelligence 
did something this week where they looked at diversity and like stocks with more women on board and they're actually starting to see divergence hmm. for companies that have more women on board so it's not um it's not just tech and um what a lot of the ESG investors have found is that they chose companies that had better management and were more able to pivot or um, rethink what they were doing in the pandemic as well. Interesting. So what so what does this mean then for kind of the ESG world? I do love, though, that the statistics are starting to show because I feel like we went through a period, I keep kind of going backwards here, but Emily, we went through a period where ESG people just wanted to do it because they felt like it was the right thing to do. But now it's become much more mainstream. Yeah, ESG, I mean, assets are just flowing in. Um, we looked at UBS this week. They were out with a note saying that they had seen $71 billion in inflows in ESG assets in the second quarter, which brought their ESG assets to $1 trillion for the first time, just at UBS. Um, and they found that 56% of sustainable funds outperformed their peers in the second quarter. Wow. So that definitely is happening from there. But then we also looked at um, annual meeting practices and just ended. So there's all those environmental resolutions that these long-term shareholders bring. Um, we're actually getting more support as well. Well, yeah, and then to that, so let's get to it. So these proposals, whether they're social, environmental, or governance, et cetera, um, what, uh, what kind of support are they getting? Are they being implemented, et cetera? Yeah, so it's a really long-term process. It's more sort of the direction of travel and where things are going. Um, and, you know, what issues investors want to flag to companies because these are mostly non-binding proposals and then the company probably takes a year or so to implement them if they do at all. But um, anyway, the votes are coming back stronger this year, even though it was an all-virtual annual meeting season, so there weren't any climate protests or um, gadfly and executive stats like there usually are in annual meeting season. So um, we looked at environmental resolutions and there were four climate charitable proposals at Russell 3000 companies that received majority support this year. Um, there were none last year that did. So that was a big change. And then the diversity proposals also got a lot more um, passing rates this year than they had previously. Yeah, I do wonder what initiative when it comes to the ESG space has just gotten, you know, the most, um, I guess, resulted in the most changes, if you will, and has really brought about changes at companies. Is it is it diversity? Is it environment? What have we seen, Emily? Well, that is a million-dollar question, I think, for sure. Um, you know, one thing that has interesting about that is that um, these social issues often have a bigger impact on stock swing. So if your mm. company has a safety issue or a diversity issue um, or Me Too issue, that can have a much bigger impact on your stock price than the environmental issues, which are sort of slow and steady, and it sort of feels further out to the market. So that's definitely one thing to watch for. I'm really upset that we didn't talk cow – oh, go ahead, Alex. What were we going to do? You're going to talk about cow toots, weren't you? <laughs> Yes. Me it was Jason the one thing after you, like you. You, after you first sold the subject, and Jason's like, you missed it, man. It you missed, really the good. missed the toots. Missed the toots. You only have about 30 seconds left. I just wanted to, to, to get your take on the fact that even the environmental proposals, I mean, does it mean that it's more, it's more less cost effective for companies because they wind up having to put up money to change stuff, and maybe that's why it doesn't get as much traction? Just got about 30 seconds. Um, yeah, environmental proposals are actually down this year, but what it means is that companies are being more preemptive with their shareholders, and they're trying to... Um, negotiate, and they've been more willing to issue sustainable finance things themselves on their own accord without so much pressure from shareholders not having to, like, get all the way to a proposal. 
Interesting stuff. I love that uh, stat, though, that the uh, Morningstar finding that 56% of sustainable funds outperform their peers in the second quarter. Alex, that's pretty cool. Interesting. Toots. Right? Toots. Toots. <laughs> toots. I was going to let it go, but I'm glad you brought it up again. <laughs> Healthy <All right>. cows. <laughs> exactly. Not so good, though, for the environment. Emily Chasen, sustainability editor at Bloomberg News, on the phone from NYC. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Joining us once again, Brian Yakman. He's Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager, and Lead Manager of the YCG Enhanced Fund. The fund, by the way, in the 96th percentile over the past five years, returning nearly 12% on average annually. Brian, based in Austin, Texas, and that's where we find him on this Wednesday. Brian, great to have you here, have you back on Bloomberg Radio. How are you? How are your, uh, how's your family doing? How's your work family doing? Man, we're, we're doing great. Um, both family and, and work family. Um, I, you know, I, I feel a little bit bad to say that, but during such difficult times, I, I'm actually really enjoying the family time and just being around my, my wife and children more. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, Alex. I don't know how you, you know, like it's just, I know you're back at work, but that kind of bubble feeling a little bit. Aww, it's cute. I, I, <laughs> I, I had mixed feelings um, about all those things. Um, Brian, do you have mixed feelings about the market at record highs? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, this is crazy time. I mean, I've never seen anything like it, nor has anyone. I'm sure you keep hearing that a lot. Um, and I'd say it's definitely a time to invest with care. And and not, not I'm not saying it's dangerous just because there's so much economic and political uncertainty, but just the fact that there's so much speculative fever running rampant out there. I mean, it's it is a casino out there. God, that doesn't sound too good. Because <laughs> we know, know, we, we know the house to, always wins. I, I'm referring to like the Robin Hood effect, right? Like so Robin Hood, mm. they went into free trading, and then it led to free trading at all these other online brokerages to be competitive. And there's, you know, with gambling and sports down, where do you turn to? Well, this, is, this seems to be the, the most popular place to now gamble. You look at Charles Schwab as an example. They're six times larger in assets than Robinhood, but Robinhood has twice as many trades on a daily basis than Schwab. Yeah, but isn't this a little isn't that a little simplistic? Uh, because I look at the S and P and I look at the last leg of the rally that we've seen in the last six weeks. It's been led by industrials, materials, and and financials, and that's a pure recovery trade. I mean, that's a, we're going to get a vaccine and or we're combating the virus in an efficient way. We're going to buy the recovery stocks, the reflation stocks. Yeah, and, that, and that's true. But the thing that I guess keeps happening is just so unpredictable that it's risk on, risk, risk off. And it just keeps going back and forth because the reality is nobody really knows how this will shake out in the next few weeks, months, and even in the next year. You know, the, the reality is there's still fear out there. The virus is still out there. And so long as there's fear, it's leading to a whole different dynamics of the marketplace. Right. But then I think the problem is if you just invested 
with fear that you'd miss the rally that we saw because then you'd be buying big tech. Uh, well, I guess you'd be buying gold, so you might have a nice run of it, but you'd be buying you know, treasuries and you'd be buying big tech and that's what got sh shaken out. So how do you as an investor deal with um, the macro versus the reality of what we're seeing in the market? Well, rather than trying to predict the directions, I think the key is as an investor, you are buying ownership in a business. So the key is to focus on businesses with proven business models, and particularly they need to be conservatively capitalized so that you know that they'll survive. You don't want to buy into something where the bondholders of today become the shareholders of tomorrow, right? <laughs> so you just want to make sure that things are going to work out over the long term on the businesses you choose to own. Well, let's talk about some of the names you're always so good about because you guys are buying names and, you know, putting names into your portfolio. Let's talk about some of the names that you like. And I know one of the bigger holdings um, is Estee Lauder. Talk to us about that brand. Sure. And that so, stock. Yeah. As you know, we're always looking for global champions. And Estee Lauder is, is certainly one of those. They have the number one or number two spot in prestige beauty in over 40 countries. So huge market share in the prestige beauty. Um, and, you know, this is they're right in the fire as well, because obviously they're being affected. Uh, you, you pointed out the software side or some of these other businesses that have this recurring revenue stream being more protected. Of course, Estee Lauder is being hit. But, you know, this is a selfie generation and people are still getting on Zoom calls and they're still they're taking photos, posting on social media. People want to be at their best, and look their best. And so traditionally, what's been a challenge for Estee Lauder was they were primarily coming through the department store channel. Over the years, they've declined from over 50% in the department store channel to under 40%. Right. And what happened was airports became the new malls. Well, obviously, it's a ghost town in both those places, department stores and airports. But the management's smart. I mean, they're, they're dedicating 75% of their budget towards digital marketing. So they're adapting. And online sales are growing super rapidly. It's over 15% now. Uh, so this, I think the point is, is whether it's direct-to-consumer or whatever channel it is, this is a disposable good that's a short repurchase cycle, and people are going to seek out their, their desirable right. brands. I'm just going to say, I had an aunt who worked at Estee Lauder for a long time. They have become brilliant and have been for years now of buying up smaller and really popular kind of in brands. And so it's not just about the Estee Lauder, you know, brands, but it's about Bobby Brown and everybody else that they've bought. Um, and that has helped them tap into a younger generation. And let's not forget, Brian, I mean, the margins on some of that stuff, it's unbelievable. Yeah, you're actually reminding me of like, when we first bought Estee Lauder several years ago uh, when it was getting hit hard. And mm -hmm. yeah, they went I, a tough time. I remember coming home to the family dinner table and I told my, my children, we bought some Estee Lauder stock today. And my teenage daughters, uh, Talia and Skye, they said to me, they're like, why are you buying Estee Lauder? That's a terrible makeup brand, which I thought was funny to hear from them. They're like, you should be buying into Mac. I was like, well, that's owned by Estee Lauder. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and dad just crushes the teenagers. Uh, but my question is, who's going to come up with a mask-resistant foundation? Because if you can do that, you win everything. My mask is full of makeup stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, if you can make a mask-resistant foundation, like, you know, they should get on that whole thing. Um, 
But what I think is interesting is that if you look at the track record, uh, you know, over the last month, that fund is up by about 3.4 percent. And year to date, they're pretty much flat. And then last year, uh, they're up by about 12 percent. So, you know, there are opportunities that don't have to be Facebook. Right. And they've been really, you know, pretty open, Alex, about kind of their more recent performance. I know longer term they've done they've done well, but it's been tougher, you know, in this environment, right, where people are just chasing some of those big tech names. So um, good, good, good to check in with him. Um, mask resistant foundation. Looking right. Forward no, to seriously. That. I mean, that, that's a th- and lipstick. If that could happen, you'd be a bazillionaire. <laughs> Isn't that called waterproof kind of ish? I don't know. Not so no, much. I know. I'm going to discuss it. All right. Our thanks to Brian Yakman over at Yakman and Company. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Thank you.